water is purified in a 60-second cycle. Find out more at MeBottle.com. Do I have an original thought in my head? My bald head? Maybe if I were happier, my hair wouldn't be falling out. Life is short. I need to make the most of it. Today's the first day of the rest of my life. I'm a walking cliché. I really need to go to the doctor, have my leg checked. There's something wrong. A bump. The dentist called again. I'm way overdue. If I stopped putting things off, I would be happier. All I do is sit on my fat ass. If my ass wasn't fat, I would be happier. I wouldn't have to wear these shirts with the tails out all the time. Like that's fooling anyone. Fat ass. I should start jogging again. Five miles a day. Really do it this time. Maybe rock climbing. I need to turn my life around. What do I need to do? I need to fall in love. I need to have a girlfriend. I need to read more, improve myself. What if I learned Russian or something? Or took up an instrument? I could speak Chinese. I would be the screenwriter who speaks Chinese. And plays the oboe. That would be cool. I should get my hair cut short. Stop trying to fool myself and everyone else and think I have a full head of hair. How pathetic is that? Just be real. Confident. Isn't that what women are attracted to? Men don't have to be attractive. But that's not true, especially these days. Almost as much pressure on men as there is on women these days. Why should I be made to feel I have to apologize for my existence? Maybe it's my brain chemistry. Maybe that's what's wrong with me. Bad chemistry. All my problems and anxiety can be reduced to a chemical imbalance or some kind of misfiring synapses. I need to get help for that. But I'll still be ugly though. Race to the bottom. 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 What's up, everybody? Doing something different today. A little bit different. Got to keep got to keep that risk up. What's your risk level? Act your, ask your doctor and hashtag risk level on all your social media. This is the turtles in the background. And why am I playing the turtles? Happy together because it is the kind of motif song from one of my favorite movies, Adaptation. It's a 2002 film starring Nicolas Cage as Charlie Kaufman and his fictional brother, Donald. 
There's Meryl Streep as Susan Orlean, Chris Cooper as John LaRoche, Brian Cox as Robert McKee. This, if that weren't enough, it's this movie's also got Tilda Swinton and Maggie Gyllenhaal, Gyllenhaal in supporting roles. It's based on, um, I'm going to actually turn the phone off. No calls today. Sorry, guys. How do I turn this ringer off? Just un- unplug. Whoa. Unplug this bad boy. There we go. Like that? Okay. So, why am I doing a whole show? <laughs> that was great radio right there. Why am I doing such a uh, a whole show on, on a movie like Adaptation? Well, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um... It's meta. It's about the creative process. It is, uh, I think it's a masterpiece. And this next hour is going to be my attempt at kind of showing, not telling, why I think that this movie is amazing. How about that? So... Yeah, this movie is about the life of a creative person. Um, if you, I think I've talked a little bit about this. Before I entered the classroom, I was a cook. Before that, I was a musician. And uh, I wanted to do it. I put everything into my music career and some idea of success. Did it for 10 years, did records, tours, and, you know, my dad likes to say, Dr. Dad, you know, he's my dad, your doctor. He likes to say that I was a, he's, I was a success, but not financially. Tremendous success, but just not financially. And I appreciate that. But the life of a creative person is, is difficult. Our hero of, of adaptation is struggling with anxiety, social phobia, depression, low self-esteem. And he's trying to adapt this book by Susan Orlean, The Orchid Thief, which is a real book. And Charlie Kaufman is a real guy. So this gets into the meta thing, which I'll tuck on and touch on and tuck on in a second. Cough button. Um, so, yeah, this, I, I'll kind of thread the needle here. I w- watched this movie like 60, 70 times uh, as a comfort, as a, a balm in Gilead in my darkest hours. And I just think that there's so much in here. It's also, as I said before, a, a meta kind of movie blurring the lines of reality and fiction. And some people thought that that was a super new thing, but as as we'll see in, in the next hour, or the next 52 minutes now, this has been happening since what some people say is the first novel, Don Quixote. Don Quixote, um, Cervantes was a, a master at blurring these lines of the real and the fictional, the created and the creator. And um, I got some help today from 
some old friends that you'll know. Johnny from Johnny's Automotive has gotten into the recording booth and read some stuff from this amazing article. Uh, I guess it's a paper, more of a paper, more of an essay, a scholarly journal piece. And he'll tell you all about it in this next spot. But first, let's hear from from Johnny, uh, Johnny's Automotive in Western North Carolina. They do the job right and check it. We'll hear from from Johnny's Automotive, and then we'll hear from Johnny about about metafiction and this great movie adaptation, Race to the Bottom, baby. Johnny's Automotive. The cold weather is now upon us. Is your car prepared? Hi, I'm Johnny from Johnny's Automotive. At Johnny's, we worry about things and check them for you so you don't have to worry about them and check them. What about your wiper blades? Can they stand up to an ice storm? How's your heater doing? Have you checked it recently? What about your brakes? At Johnny's, we make sure that your car is ready to do the job and fight hard against Jack Frost and his wintry mix of friends. Come on down to the corner of Crisco Road and Popular Creek. At Johnny's, we do it right and then check it. That's Johnny's way. See you soon. Adaptation, Metafiction, Self-Creation by Julie Levinson, Babson College. As Christian Metz wrote, a narrative has a beginning and an ending, a fact that simultaneously distinguishes it from the rest of the world and opposes it to the real world. Inevitably, stories reduce and falsify what they purport to replicate. The most successful draw the reader-viewer both into and out of the text and reveal the stunning arbitrariness of any decision to tell a story in a particular way and the endless possibilities for creating fictional facts by telling a story differently. So that's some kind of intro into this whole world we're getting into. And in the background, this is the soundtrack from adaptation, the evolution of a screenwriter. Let's hear from Meryl Streep about her her thoughts when she got the script. It was the best script I've had. That's why I wanted to do the project. It really is. It's like really great. I'm playing Susan Orlean, who's a celebrated writer for The New Yorker, still working there. Um, and uh, she has written a number of Wonderful books, among them was The Orchid Thief and uh, Charlie Kaufman, who wrote Being John Malkovich, was contracted to adapt that into a a film. And this is the story of him adapting her book. So, as Charlie embarks on adapting The Orchid Thief, he has kind of a a personal philosophy and a, a list of things that he will not do. He does not want to succumb to these tropes. And he at a fancy LA dinner or lunch with Tilda Swinton's character, who's one of the film execs, he gives he gives this list of kind of his philosophy and his what what he doesn't want to get into. So, tell me your thoughts on this crazy little project of ours. First, I think it's a great book. LaRoche is a fun character, isn't it? Absolutely. And Orlean makes orchids 
so fascinating. Plus her, her musings on Florida and orchid poaching, Indians, it's just, it's great sprawling New Yorker stuff. And I'd want to remain true to that. You know, I'd, I'd want to let the uh, movie exist rather, rather than be artificially plot driven. Great. I guess I'm not exactly sure what that means. Oh. I'm not sure I know what that means either. Uh, you know, I just don't want to ruin it by making it a Hollywood thing, you know, like 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 an orchid heist movie or or something, you know, or uh, you know, changing the orchids into poppies and turning it into a movie about drug running, you know. Why, why can't there be a movie simply about, about flowers? I guess we thought that maybe Susan, Orlean, and 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 Laroche could fall in love. Okay, and but I'm saying it, it's like I don't want to cram in sex or uh, guns or car chases, you know, I, or characters, you, you know, learning profound life lessons or growing or coming to like each other or overcoming obstacles to succeed in the end. You know, I mean, it's it's the, the book isn't like that, and and life isn't like that. You know, it just isn't, and. <clears throat> I feel very strongly about this. So, as Charlie's struggles continue, let's hear from Johnny, from Johnny's Automotive. When Charlie is first hired to write the screenplay of The Orchid Thief, he articulates his intention to remain true to the spirit of the book by letting the movie exist rather than being artificially plot-driven. No sex or guns, or car chases, or characters learning profound life lessons, or growing, or coming to like each other, or overcoming obstacles to succeed in the end. This catalog of movie conventions precisely describes the end of adaptation. Yeah, so now let's hear from the actual Charlie Kaufman, and this is in an interview that he did in like, Holland or something. Um, it's a very uh, awkward thing I found on YouTube, but it's great. I don't. I, I guess I agree with the character um, in the movie. I, I don't. It, it doesn't. It doesn't appeal to me to 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 be to to have a kind of a formula um, for writing anything. So um, I think some people like it, and it's helpful for some people. And I wouldn't tell people not to do it if they want to do it but i am um i'm not interested in 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 sort of going in with a with a framework i think it in, inhibits the possibilities for me mm. and uh the, the the funny thing about the the film adaptation is that um, charlie starts out with in the beginning with all these firm statements about uh, how to not write a, a screenplay and what to how you should approach the process, but he kind of adapts to um, his brother Donald's enthusiasm for for masters like McKay. And uh, I'm not sure he adapts to the enthusiasm as much as that he he's desperate to finish this project and he doesn't know how to do it. So, uh, um, to my mind, uh, the movie adaptation, the the main character in that movie is the screenplay itself, and the um, the, the evolution of the screenplay from um, from its initial intents to its uh, ultimate kind of corruption, um, um, and to me that that's kind of the the 
tragedy of this creature that is the screenplay that never was able to uh, reach the the fruition that that Charlie had hoped. He never was able to make a movie about flowers. So let's check back in with the movie Charlie Kaufman movie version as he kind of wrestles with this character of the screenplay. To begin, to begin, how to start. I'm hungry. I should get coffee. Coffee would help me think. But I should write something first, then reward myself with coffee. Coffee and a muffin. Okay, so I need to establish the themes. Then he says, maybe banana nut. Why did I cut that out? He says, yeah, he goes back to thinking he wants a banana nut muffin. So, this epic case of writer block, writer's block continues. And one of the things that I love about this movie is how it just basks in our inadequacies as people. And this is from a interview with or my next clip is from an interview with Meryl Streep and Nicolas Cage as the movie was coming out and they were on this show called the Charlie Rose show you familiar with that but I cut Charlie Rose out of this clip so don't worry no interns were harmed in the making of this clip yeah it's that interior monologue that undermines you that's going on with me right now you know like like, what, what are you saying? Your lip is wiggling. You're nervous. You know, I mean, it's <laughs> everybody has it. Everybody sort of um, can relate to that that uh, feeling of inadequacy. I remember actually Merle saying that to me when I first met her on the on the set. And we were talking about it. And it, it really made it so true because uh, we do all relate on one level or another that you wake up in the morning. I don't look so good or <clears throat> gee, I just can't. Why can't I do better? And. It's really Charlie's more extreme version of that, perhaps. Um, but I think, as Meryl says, we do all do it. So, you know, this all this strum and drong and the internal struggles of an artist are one thing. But then what really sets the movie on fire is John LaRoche. Uh, so let me, let's meet uh, John LaRoche for the first time in the movie. The, if At the beginning of this clip, he's in court. And then you see him outside about to get into his van and he's approached by, for the first time, by Susan Orlean. And he utters my favorite line of the movie, The New Yorker. Yes, The New Yorker. Uh, I've been a professional horticulturist for like 12 years. I own my own plant nursery, which was destroyed by the hurricane. I'm a professional plant lecturer. I've given over like 60 lectures on the cultivation of plants. I'm a published author, both in magazine and book form, and I have extensive experience with orchids and the asexual micropropagation of orchids under aseptic cultures. That's laboratory work. It's not at all like your nursery work. Um, I'm probably the smartest person I know. Thank you. You're very welcome. Mr. LaRoche, I'm Susan Orlean. I'm a writer for The New Yorker. It's a magazine that... I'm familiar with The New Yorker. The New Yorker? Yes, The New Yorker, right? Yes, <laughs> that's, that's right. 
Um, I just am very interested in doing a piece on, on your situation down here. And I oh, yeah? Just... Yeah. You want to put this in? I don't care what goes on here. I'm right, and I'll take it all the way to Supreme Court. Because that judge can screw herself. Take this in for one second. <clears throat> From the academy to the womb that bore me, thank you. And to all the nominees, it's a pleasure to be thought in your same company. Um, to all the people in adaptation who helped to make this the most enjoyable job I ever had, thank you. Charlie Kaufman, Spike Jones. Nicholas Cage, the fabulous, beautiful, wonderful Meryl Streep. Working with this woman was like making great jazz. And you had a lot to do with this, so I thank you. To my wife, Marianne, you took on all the burden. Thank you. And, uh, in light of all the troubles in this world, I wish us all peace. Thank you. So, yeah, we met John LaRoche, and then we heard Chris Cooper winning his Oscar for this performance. Um, I guess that was the 2003 Oscars. There's not a lot of music aside from the soundtrack that we've been listening to in this movie and we heard happy together there's two other songs and one of them happens at a at a party and i guess this is there's i think this is what you call diegetic music because it's it's like the characters hear it it's in the it's in the movie and this is elvis costello allison great tune race to the bottom you're, you are listening to Radio Free Brooklyn. We are a 501c3. We survive and thrive because of your donations dorn and donations. <laughs> and so if, if you like what you're hearing, drop us, drop, us some, uh, drop us a dime. And also check out the some 70 other shows on, on the station. It's really a community effort. So much great work going in to shows around the clock, 24-7. If you are listening on your computer, you can also download the app for iPhone or Android. And, uh, yeah. So, Elvis Costello, Allison. And then we got a ton more to get to in the movie. Race to the Bottom. Seeing you after so long, girl And with the way you look I understand that you were not impressed But I heard you let that little friend of mine Take off your party dress I'm not gonna get too sentimental Like those other stickers Somebody I only know It isn't my 
got a husband now Baby, leave your pretty fingers lying in the wedding cake You used to hold him right in your hand I bet it took all he could take Sometimes I wish that I could stop you from talking When I hear the silly things that you say So in addition to the power of John LaRoche as a character, if that weren't enough, there's also maybe the craziest thing about this movie is that Charlie Kaufman creates himself a twin, Donald, also played by Nicolas Cage. And Donald is kind of like the id to, to Charlie's ego or super ego or whatever that is. I got to crack open my Freud. But um, I guess it would be the super ego. Sorry. Sorry, Dad. Sorry, Dr. Dad. <laughs> but uh, so, yeah. And Donald is kind of a, a bit of a doofus, but he's kind of fallen on economic hard times and he starts to live with Charlie and he's kind of doesn't know what he's going to do with his life. And then he decides that he's going to take... Uh, Take his shot at screenwriting. And this is one of my favorite scenes of the movie where Donald is talking to Charlie about his screenplay and how he showed it to their mom. I pitched my screenplay to mom. Don't say pitch. Sorry. Anyway, she said it was Silence of the Lambs meets Psycho. Well, maybe you guys could collaborate. I hear mom's really good with structure. Maybe you guys could collaborate. I hear mom's really good with structure. So, Susan Orlean befriends, or at least takes on John LaRoche as a as a subject and starts hanging with him. And oh, just sidebar, 
Tom Hanks was going to play the role of Charlie Kaufman originally. Can you imagine that? Would it be... Maybe it would have... I mean, Nicolas Cage did a, an amazing job. But maybe if Tom Hanks did this, it would have ris- uh, raised this movie into the echelons that it deserves to be. Because everybody loves Tom Hanks. Anyway. They hop into the van and Susan Orlean gets to know her subject, John LaRoche. Look, I'll tell you a story, all right? I once fell deeply, you know, profoundly in love with tropical fish. I had 60 goddamn fish tanks in my house. I skin dived to find just the right ones. Anisotromus virginicus, Holocanthus ciliaris, Chaetodon capistratus, you name it. In one day I say, I renounce fish. I vow never to set foot in that ocean again. That was 17 years ago, and I have never since stuck so much as a toe in that ocean. And I love the ocean. But why? Done with fish. Done with fish. So Orlean starts to revel in LaRoche's passion, but also is jealous of his ability to leave things behind. And you start to realize that she is having thoughts about possibly leaving her marriage. And she, like LaRoche, becomes drawn to finding this ghost orchid is kind of the symbol at the heart of the movie. Life seemed to be filled with things that were just like the ghost orchid. Wonderful to imagine and easy to fall in love with, but a little fantastic and fleeting and out of reach. And so when Susan Orlean read the screenplay depicting her life, she was kind of amazed at at Charlie Kaufman's intuitions and his reading. And I mean, a lot of this stuff was fictionalized, but he did pick up on some troubles that Orlean was having in her, her marriage and different things. And I found this from some Texas horticultural like PBS show with Orlean talking about her research on orchids. Oh, well, there, there was one that I, uh, and I had said, I'm not going to start collecting orchids. I'm doing this book as a journalist. I am not going to collect orchids. And of course, writing about people who are very passionate as these people were and being exposed to not the garden variety uh, orchid that you get at Home Depot, but the most amazing, rare, beautiful orchids in the world. And having people say, come on, take one. So Charlie continues to be incredibly locked up with his writing, can't get anything down on the page, is struggling. And so he succumbs to going to this writing workshop, another thing he said he would never do. And this also is a, a, a real guy, uh, Robert McKee, who's a screenwriter. 
and kind of tries to give the principles of a great story. And so this, this scene from the movie is when Charlie goes to New York, ostensibly to talk to Susan Orlean, but he chickens out and goes to this workshop. Okay, thank you, thank you. We have a long three days ahead. Years from now, you'll be standing around a posh cocktail party congratulating yourself on how you spent an entire weekend locked in a room with an asshole from Hollywood for your art. I am pathetic. I am a loser. So, what is the substance of writing? I have failed. I am panicked. First, I have sold out. I am worthless. Last, I, it is my weakness, my ultimate lack of conviction that brings well, me here. Easy answers. Wants to shortcut yourself to success. And here I am, because my jaunt into the abyss brought me nothing. Well, isn't that just the risk one takes for attempting something new? I should leave here right now. I'll start over. I need to face this project head on. And God help you if you use voiceover in your work, my friends. God help you. It's flaccid, sloppy writing. Any idiot can write voiceover narration to explain the thoughts of a character. Okay, that's it. One hour for lunch. So how did McKee make his way into this movie and how did they get permission? You're asking me? Well, I'm telling you. Here's an interview with the real McKee talking about this process of accepting his, his appearance in the movie and how he got Brian Cox to play him. That whole thing came about. I was in my office one day working and the phone rang. And it was uh, a producer, Ed Saxon, uh, calling from New York <clears throat> with a very apologetic tone saying, this is the most embarrassing phone call I've ever had to make. And I don't know what to do, but here's the situation. There's a screenwriter named Charles, Charlie Kaufman. He's written a screenplay, and he's made you a character in it. And he has freely quoted from your lectures and quoted from your book without permission, without copyright. Um, we don't know what to do. I said, well, send it to me. I'll read it, and I'll give you a sense of what I think. And so I read it, and um, I saw what he was, what he needed to do. He was trying to, he was trying to write a, this film about the worst case of writer's block in history, and he needed an antagonist, and he needed somebody to represent Hollywood in, a, in an antagonistic way, but, it, but a way that would cut both ways. And so we had twin brothers, and one loves my book and is writing a huge uh, action piece with the great success, the other struggling to make an independent film. And this is, uh, this is the uh, inner conflict in Charlie Kaufman and many uh, writer-directors like him, how to make a commercial art movie, okay? And, and so they, he needed my character to have something to push against. And so I thought about it, and I thought, if it's done, if it's done with humor, if it gets a laugh, I said, I know I'm a controversial person, and... Uh, and so, um, so I called Ed back, and I said, if, if we have fun, <clears throat> and uh, I'll play his villain for him. I said, but uh, two things. One, I have to have a say in the casting. Two, the third act sucks, and I can't be a character in a bad movie. Three, I want my redeeming scene. So here is the redeeming scene, back to the movie. Charlie Kaufman chases down McKee after the, after the workshop seminar, and... They go to a bar. You cannot have a protagonist without desire. It doesn't make any sense. You follow? Good. Anyone else? Yes. 
Sir, what if a writer is attempting to create a story where nothing much happens, where people don't change, they don't have any epiphanies, they struggle and are frustrated and nothing is resolved? More reflection of the real world. The real world? Yes, sir. First of all, you write a screenplay without conflict or crisis, you'll bore your audience to tears. Secondly, nothing happens in the world. People are murdered every day. There's genocide, war, corruption. Somewhere in the world, somebody sacrifices his life to save somebody else. Someone somewhere takes a conscious decision to destroy someone else. People find love, people lose it. For Christ's sake, a child watches a mother beaten to death on the steps of a church. Someone goes hungry. Somebody else betrays his best friend for a woman. If you can't find that stuff in life, then you, my friend, don't know crap about life. I don't have any use for it. I don't have any bloody use for it. Okay, thanks. So, so good. Obviously, that's not when he follows him to the bar. Um, let me let me pull that clip. This is from the soundtrack we're listening to, Shinier Than an Ant. And I'll talk about this in a second. So he here here's in the bar, and this is just a short little thing, but I love what he tells Charlie. This is the real redemption. Your characters must change. And the change must come from them. Uh, it's 96 degrees in the shade also. Uh, yeah, so your characters must change, and the change must come from them. Uh, I love that. Okay, so let's talk to Johnny. Let's get back to Johnny as he reads from this scholarly paper on the movie. And this is the slaw, sloth, the slaw, the slog pit of creation. Sorry. Let's see. Where's Johnny? 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 Where are you? Where are you? Johnny three. Johnny? He's in this pit somewhere. Here we go. In adaptation and other such self-creating narratives, part of the point is the creator's lack of absolute jurisdiction over his creation. As the artwork seems to declare its independence from the artist's control, he is ultimately acknowledged as a mere conduit for a variety of creative forces and traditions. Thus, although the character is, of course, generated by the text, it appears that the text has to some extent been generated by the character. The creative process and the creative product fuse to become one and the same. Charlie acknowledges this in the film when he talks about the Uroboros, the snake that devours its own tail. I'm insane, 
I'm Uro Burrows. I wrote myself into my own screenplay. In this case, he has doubled back on and devoured his own tail, which, like the Uroboros, is no longer linear, but rather coiled. I love the way that Johnny says Uroboros. It's like William Burroughs. Okay, so it turns out this ghost orchid gets you high. And this is one of the best depictions of intoxication I've ever seen in a movie. Susan Orlean and this, I'm getting into spoiler territory. If you want to just turn this off, watch the movie and then listen to this on the rerun on Wednesday, you can. But here is uh, Susan Orlean in the movie has indulged in the powder from that is created, extracted from the Ghost Orchid, and calls up John LaRoche from her, her hotel room. You go like this. No, keep going. No, no. trying to make a dial tone and you have to sustain and then I will join you and together see I can't do it by myself okay which one do you want me to do yes yes okay. yes here we go we got it so as you might guess Susan Orlean had some, the real Susan Orlean had some misgivings about being portrayed as a drug addict in this movie. Here she is talking um, in front of a, some group of people. I, I don't know. Found this on YouTube. Here, here's Susan Orlean's uh, recollection of how she felt at the beginning of this process. I went home. I started flipping through the script. And I thought, who is Charlie Kaufman? Isn't that the guy who wrote the movie? And, and then I continued flipping through until I got to the scene, I'll never forget this, where I appear on a porn site. And I thought, wait a minute. Hang on a minute. I called the next day and I said, um, you know, I, I can't let you make this movie. I said, I, it's going to ruin my career if you really insist on making this film, you're going to have to change my name. And he said, why? And I said, because it's, it makes me look so bad. I mean, I'm, I'm sleeping with my subject. I'm a drug addict. I'm, and he said, well, Susan, look, look at Charlie. He's masturbating through the whole movie. Right? <laughs> you know, what's your problem? So I went back and read the original article in the new yorker that started this whole thing and it's great the writing is great 
and I got my buddy Bethany from Crappy Crafts to read some of it. So let's hear first from Crappy Crafts and then from Bethany's reading of the the tail end of Susan Orlean's Orchid Fever from The New Yorker in 1995. Hi, this is Bethany. I just had a lot of coffee, and then I went over to this place that I really want to tell you about called Crappy Crafts. Crappy Crafts specializes in all crafts. The amount of crappy craft work going on at this store is unbelievable. There's ceramic and glass crafts, including glass making, glass blowing, glass etching, glass bead making, and stained glass. There's earthenware, mosaic, and porcelain. And I'm just getting started. There's fiber and textile crafts, like quilting, lace making, embroidery, rope making, macrame, spinning, weaving, knitting, crocheting, shoe making, and stitching. Hold on, there's also flower crafts, like bouquet and floral design. There's leather work, like leather carving and boiled leather making. Need I mention mixed media? There's beadwork, basket weaving, and scrapbooking. Don't even get me started on needlework. Does crochet ring a bell? How about cross stitch, embroidery, needle pointing, patchwork, and quilting? And we haven't even gotten into paper crafts, like origami, decoupage, book binding, paper engrossing, paper mache, and calligraphy. Oh, but you're tough. You want to work with wood and furniture. Well, Crappy Crafts has wood burning, wood carving, lacquer art, cabinet making, upholstery, wood turning, and timber framing. And finally, there's metal crafts. Like enameling, blacksmithing, tinware, clock making, silversmith, coppersmith, locksmithing, jewelry, watchmaking, and casting. So come to Crappy Crafts and get crafting. The Fakahatchee has a certain strange, wild beauty. It's also an aggressively inhospitable place. In fact, the hours I spent retracing LaRoche's footsteps were probably the most miserable I've spent in my entire life. The swampy part of the Fakahatchee is hot and wet and buggy and full of cottonmouth snakes and diamondback rattlers and alligators and snapping turtles and poisonous plants and wild hogs and things that stick into you and on you and fly into your nose and eyes. Crossing the swamp is a battle. You can walk through about as calmly as you would walk through a car wash. In the middle of the swamp, the sinkholes are filled with as much as seven feet of standing water, and the air has the slack, drapey weight of wet velvet. Sides of trees look sweaty. Leaves are slick from the humidity. The mud sucks your feet and tries to keep a hold of them. Failing that, it settles for your shoes. The water in the swamp is stained black with tannin from the cypress trees, which is so corrosive that it can cure leather. Whatever isn't wet in the Fakahachi is blasted. The sun pounds the treeless prairies. The grass gets so dry that the friction from a car can set it on fire, and the burning grass can engulf the car in flames. The Fakahachi used to be littered with burned up cars that had been abandoned by pan-fried adventurers. A botanist who traveled through the Fakahachi in the 40s recalled in an interview that he was most surprised by the area's interesting variety of squirrels and by the number of charred Model Ts. Wow, thank you, Bethany. That's a great reading from Susan Orlean's the ghost, what was it? The ghost thief? The hell was it called? Anyway, they get back. <laughs> Orchid fever. So 
I don't want to spoil anything too much if you haven't seen the end of the movie, but suffice it to say that near the climax of the movie, Donald and Charlie are in extremis and they are back in the swamp. Susan Orlean has taken us back into the swamp. Beth, thanks to Bethany and Crappy Crafts for doing that so well. So we're back in the swamp and Charlie and Donald have this heart to heart. They're going to find us. I don't think so. I don't want to die, Donald. I've wasted my life. God, I've wasted You did not. I admire you, Donald, you know? I spent my whole life paralyzed, worrying about what people think of me. And you, you're just oblivious. I'm not oblivious. No, you don't understand. I mean that as a compliment. It was this time in high school. I was watching you at the library window. You were talking to Sarah Marsh. Oh, God, I was so in love with her. I know. And, and you were flirting with her. And she was being really sweet to you. I remember that. And then, when you walked away, she started making fun of you with Kim Kennedy. And it was like they were, they were laughing at me. You didn't know it all? You seemed so happy. I knew. I heard them. Well, how could we were so happy? I can love whoever I want. She thought you were pathetic. <laughs> that was her business, not mine. You are what you love, not what loves you. That's what I decided a long time ago. Before I left Florida, I went into the swamp with the rangers, who had replanted the orchids LaRoche had wanted so badly. Some of the plants were tucked into rock crevices and tree crotches. The section of branches the ghost orchids were attached to had been wired onto the side of trees. Orchids are slow to grow and slow to die. It'll be some time before anyone can tell which of the purloined plants, if any, will survive. These ghost orchids were not blooming. So I went back out the next day and walked for hours to try to find one that was more than a green strap on a tree. I saw some roots, but it seemed as if the moment of their bloom had passed. I called LaRoche to tell him this and he said, That's not true. They're out there. I know it. I know where they are. The phone was silent for a moment and then he cleared his throat and said, You should have gone with me. I have to go right home. I know how to finish the script now. It ends with Kaufman driving home after his lunch with Amelia, thinking he knows how to finish the script. Shit, that's voiceover. McKee would not approve. How else can I show his thoughts? I don't know. Oh, who cares what McKee says? It feels right. Conclusive. I wonder who's going to play me. Someone not too fat. I like that Gerard Depardieu, but can he not do the accent? Anyway, it's done. And that's something. So, Kaufman drives off from his encounter with Amelia, filled for the first time with hope. I like this. This is good. Imagine me and you, I do. I think about you day and night. It's only right to think about the girl you love and hold her tight. So happy together So happy together And how is the weather 
So let's give the last word to Johnny from Johnny's Automotive, who's been such a big part of sponsoring Race to the Bottom for so many years. Um, Johnny, uh, what do you have to say about this? Charlie's 11th hour conversion to romantic, not to mention artistic, contentment, has to be taken as an example of what Douglas Sirk once called the emergency exit. The improbable, last-minute resolution of the vexing issues that have defined the preceding narrative. The final image of adaptation is a deep-focused, time-lapse shot containing a bed of flowers in the foreground, with heavy and increased rapid traffic behind it. Although this is an emphatically ambiguous image, it seems to be re-invoking Charlie's thwarted attempt to make a film about flowers. While simultaneously playing with the notion of adaptation to an inhospitable environment, the shot harks back to the film's punning title, which, as the story unfolds, seems to refer less to the process of adapting book to screen, and more to the process by which organisms survive in a Darwinian world, specifically Charlie's reluctant adaptation to the moors and methods of Hollywood movies. The hubris of the protagonist in thinking he can be an original, godlike creator of his fictional universe is contradicted by the film's ending. Wow. Good job, Johnny. Dang a lame. So, what have we learned today? That's a rhetorical question. Thanks so much to Johnny from Johnny's Automotive and Bethany from Crappy Crafts and Room for Cream. Support them. Support Radio Free Brooklyn. This is the other song that is playing in the movie, diegetically, as... LaRoche and Orlean are driving in the night in his crappy van. Stay tuned for Crime Talk BK with Joanna Perpich, or if you're listening to this as a rerun on a Friday afternoon, stay tuned for a new edition of Brooklyn Bandstand. We'll be back with a regular, regularly scheduled race to the bottom next week. Got a lot to talk about. And I hope to see you there.
could make me feel bitter. 